Hello and welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. Right, better crack on, lots to get through and we don't want to be pushed into overtime as it can be really bad for your health, but more on that later. Coming up, we've got a juicy jobs top 10 with lots of engineering and environment roles. Julian's urging us not to feel trapped by a job title and we'll be asking whether the widespread minimum requirement of a 2-1 grade for graduate jobs should be scrapped. People get a 2-2 for all sorts of reasons. This kind of uh, line in the sand, if you like, excludes those who may be stronger at the skills that are actually needed for the job. Our guest is Professor Saad Medhat, founding chief executive of the New Engineering Foundation. He'll be talking about the employment opportunities to be found in the engineering, technology and science sectors. But first, we've got our Q&A review with Ali White. Hi, Al. Hiya. How are you doing? Very well, thank Good. you. So what you picked out for us this week? We've got Roots into Filmmaking, which was a great panel and a really great discussion. It was a good discussion. Tell me what you've picked out and I'll share some of my highlights in a bit. <laughs> well, it was a really interesting discussion. First of all, a lot of people coming in uh, sort of saying that the industry isn't so great at the moment. They might have had difficulty getting an internship or they're unemployed, trying to break back into the sector or even trying to career change in, but finding it difficult. Yeah. And so what were they talking about? I, I guess Yes, they were offering advice from different perspectives. Yeah, well, there's a really great uh, mix and a lot of it is really helpful for people who are trying to get their foot on the ladder. Uh, they were just saying, be passionate. You know, employers are looking for passion, people that really can demonstrate they want to do it. Because as one of our panellists pointed out, you can train anyone, but it, it, you've got to be ready for a long, tough road ahead of you. A lot of pain and, you know, long hours and stuff in some respects if you really want to get stuck in. So they're saying, you know, they really want to see that you love it. And another thing is very interesting, we're saying to showcase your work, you know, you are trying to demonstrate well, how you are a good filmmaker, so get yourself a YouTube channel and, and, you know, be persistent and make yourself an asset, you know, if you're pitching yourself to film directors and producers, you know, put the time in, learn your craft, you know, read books, ask questions, you know, put yourself in areas where you can meet people, like network and make your contacts. But at the same point, a couple of people did pop, point out, please don't be too cocky, you know, be enthusiastic, but don't go too far you know and I tell you one thing that I picked out which made me laugh and was really useful they were sort of talking about how now people in filmmaking have to have skills across multi-platforms so you need to direct produce and edit and um, one of the guys said that you would be a predator so you were producing and editing that was really funny but it's quite a valid point isn't it that you you do need to have a wide range of talents now can you tell us a bit more about what they said about that yeah well that did uh, that caught my eye as well I thought that was a great as job title predator yeah. <laughs> but um, I think uh, the important thing to realise is technology is really allowing professionals to take care of multiple tasks, you know. So even if you're applying for an internship, if you can get the edge on another candidate with some skills that you can demonstrate that are a bit outside of the usual, even if you just own your second-hand camera or a bit of an editing suite and put together your own work, I think that would be invaluable. Yeah, definitely. And I do know that if you wanted to develop multi-platform skills, Skillset have got a bursary for training courses mm. for that, so it's worth checking out their website. Oh, brilliant. Um, any other tips Al? There was a post from Andy Davis 24 who's done a short directing course and he loves it but he's finding it hard to find funding for any kind of short film and script development so um, some top tips for him was a website called Kickstarter it's kickstarter.com where you can actually advertise your own projects and entice people to invest in your you know what you're working on and stuff that's interesting so that's one to follow um but it's a bit of a shame because it's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation one of our panelists did point out you know funding usually comes with experience but maybe just put something together 
together yourself. Find some up-and-coming actors and borrow some equipment and you can all learn together and perhaps pitch your work and maybe secure that funding after all. All right, great. Thank you, Ali. No problem. So I mentioned overtime at the top of the show and despite being a staunch believer in leaving work on time, Julian's fallen victim to a hectic schedule, jetting in and out of New York no less. So he can't make it into the studio this week. But don't worry, I managed to get him on the phone and jet lag aside, he's full of his usual workplace wit and wisdom. Hello, this is Julian Lindley back again and my tip this week is don't be confined by your job title. I always think it's a great idea to think about yourself in a bigger role in the future and to take on uh, as many extra responsibilities as you can fit in, and this is important, without it damaging your current work. If you can identify the parts of your business that you are really passionate about and that you, you kind of really enjoy and you try and grow your job into that position even though it might not be the one that you currently have it just means that it's going to be a much easier uh, working experience that you're going to have over over your lifetime so I think one key event that took place in my career that really sort of helped people to see me in a different light and also helped me to see myself in a different light as well was uh, when I was deputy editor at Heat I had a meeting with an HIV charity called Crusade and cooked up this plan that we were going to organise a charity auction and sell off celebrity kind of paraphernalia in exchange for gigantic wads of cash. We staged this fantastic party uh, in a hotel that made the front page of the newspapers the following day. It raised a huge amount of money. So that really helped my boss to see that I was more than just a journalist that I had got that kind of extra special thing where I could see Heat as a brand and see the power of the brand. And I definitely think that was kind of quite an important move for me to make. And certainly, uh, you know, it was, it was something that, you know, a, a good cause benefited from as well. So it's kind of smiles all round. So to sum up, don't feel constrained by your job title. That was creative director at Bauer, Julian Lindley, on contributing above and beyond your job spec. Now, I'm guilty of maybe four or five hours a week. Ali does a few cheeky things on the side. And Kate, well, she never stops. I'm talking about overtime, of course, and the recent news that if you do too much, it could be bad for your health. Researchers from University College London and the Finnish Institute of Occupational Health have been following civil servants in Whitehall and found that although one or two hours overtime made no difference to people's health, three or more hours led to a 60% increased risk of coronary heart disease. So, bearing these findings in mind, careers hot desker Mimi Poskett set to the streets with a mic to discover your thoughts on working hours. My name's Andrew Mountford, I'm an electrician. My name's Stephen Poynton, I'm an electrician. And on average, how many hours extra overtime do you do a week? Um, 30 extra. We do 70 hours. Well, obviously, the contracted hours are 40, but we do 30 extra. And do you get paid for those extra hours? In a fashion. Um, Nazim Malik, office manager. And is there much call for you to do extra hours at work? Um, not really, no. But I've known people that overwork, work is their life, and it does, you know, because at my old place there was actually a couple of deaths on the job. I think that was caused with work and stress. And I think people don't call in sick because they're scared of the workload they're going to be faced with once they get back. And do you think that working extra hours is bad for your health? Yes. Basically because you're tired and you're late finishing work, so in a place like London obviously you've got to get convenient food, 
you don't always feel like sandwiches, so you might even get a Chinese. So then you go into bed later, and it's it's not the way forward. Well, my name's Alan, and I'm an operations director for a company looking after building services. And um, have, they, have you ever found that by working long hours, you've suffered the results of like ill health or? No, only than getting old, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, my name is Carla and I work at the American Car Wash. Doing extra overtime is bad for the health. Yeah, definitely. You get no sleep. <laughs> uh, my name's William Heron, I'm a plumber. I'm my own boss, so whatever overtime I do is up to myself, really. I usually start at 8 in the morning and we usually finish whenever the job has finished. I'm Ashley and I'm a DJ slash bartender. <laughs> Finishing times are quite late, so it means if you're stretching another couple of hours, you don't go home. So, you know, seven. seven in the morning, which usually happens, like. and then start again, do the same routine, you don't get any sleep, and it does, you do feel it taking a toll on your body. If I was offered a job where extra hours were mandatory, I probably wouldn't take it. If I could apply for a place where I can work overtime, then depending on how much I get paid, that would be definitely be attractive. <laughs> overtime at work gives money. <laughs> because of our line of work, we would have to take it, because that is what it says in every job we've been it does require over and above the contracted hours and you just agree to it hoping that it doesn't but it does have you ever thought that like or if i put in the extra hours i'm going to get a promotion or yeah i do feel like if you put um extra i believe that an extra hours do result in getting promotion it shows you're dedicated it shows because no one else wants to stay behind in extra two hours you know so yeah i do i do believe that if you come to a site like this if we started working said right we can only work 40 hours a week we wouldn't get a job simple as that it seems that although most of you agree that too many extra hours can have a negative effect on your health and lifestyle, you're still doing it and believe it will pay off for your career in the long run. Another recent story that caught the careers desk's attention is the news that more than half of graduates think employers should scrap their minimum requirements of a 2-1 degree. And this is according to a survey by graduate recruitment specialist Milkround.com. Joining me now to talk about this Catch 2-2 and hopefully offer some suggestions on how graduates can get round these requirements is Tanya de Grunwald, founder of graduatefog.co.uk, a new careers advice website for job-seeking graduates. Now, Tanya, I know that you're a bit of a champion for job-seeking graduates. What did you make of this story? Well, first of all, I was a bit confused about what the story was. It seemed to be that Graduates were suggesting employers should be saying that people with two twos are absolutely fine or anything below that is absolutely fine. Um, so this whole idea that people, that, uh, employers should scrap a 2-1 seems a bit confusing to me. I'm not sure there's any should about it. I think it's up to the employers to decide what, what their requirements are. After all, you know, it's their money. They're going to be paying this person's salary. You know, they're going to have to work with this person every single day. So I think it's their right to choose how they recruit that person. I mean, my point is that I'm not sure that the students that answered this, this survey were actually suggesting that anything as radical as, as any sort of change in the law or that people with a tutu were being, you know, discriminated yeah. against in some way. And isn't that outrageous? I think probably... What feels more likely is that they're saying that this kind of uh, line in the sand, if you like, excludes those who may be stronger at the skills that are actually needed for the job. Because I, I mean, I think the fact is that people get a two-two for all sorts of reasons, and I think if they do make up for it in other ways, you know, with work experience and such, that I, that I think that maybe the person with a two-one and less experience may not be the strongest person for the job. I think it's kind of important though to to kind of understand why employers do ask for a two-one. 
I think they probably assume that this is a reasonable indicator of a candidate's ability to apply themselves. I think the major reason also is that it's just a really, really quick and easy way to reduce the number of applicants they get because, you know, they, they do get swamped. And then I think there's also a bit of a snob factor, just that they like to be able to say, we only recruit <laughs> people with a 2-1 and above. I think they just like to be able to say that, really. Yeah, so do you come across many graduates then when you're sort of working and meeting people that find this is a bit of a major barrier when they're trying to find work or not? Um, I get lots of emails from people saying... There's loads of stuff that I can't apply for. And I think it's really important to remember that there's all sorts of reasons why somebody might have got a 2-2. Uh, one of the major ones is that students might have taken on uh, lots of paid work while they were doing their studies and then slightly taken their eye off the ball with the studies themselves, which feels to me like a bit of a harsh reason to then be kind of rejected for jobs. They might also have had something like a, some kind of depressive period that maybe they might not want to disclose. So I think, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for this, really. I mean, I know I graduated in 2000, I'm, I'm 30 now, and I don't know lots of people who got a 2-2 and have done exceptionally well since graduating. I, uh, I should probably admit that I was only 0.1% from a 2-2 myself, um, and I think I've done pretty well since then. I, I was a journalist, um, and I've had a book published, and I don't think either of these things have happened because I got a 2-1 yeah. and not a 2-2. So I think there's definitely a case for arguing that recruiters could be more open-minded on this issue. What would you sort of advise to people who are finding themselves in this sort of tutu boat? And, and what, what sort of ways can they uh, big up themselves? Like what can they put forward on their applications that's going to make them stand out regardless of their grade? Right, OK. I, I would first say that it's definitely not a disaster to get a tutu. And there's certainly ways to make up for it. I think you have to be a little bit smart about it, to be honest. And, and I think you need to maybe accept that the big grad schemes maybe aren't going to be for you, but possibly they weren't right for you anyway, to be honest. This is just my opinion. But if you're a 2-2 kind of person, then possibly that sort of role isn't going to be right for you. I think, I mean, the, the best way to make up for it is obviously to get some experience, which I'm sure that people listening won't want to hear. Um, <laughs> but also, I think to be extra smart about finding less competitive opportun opportunities. So don't just look at um, advertised roles. Really, really be proactive, you know, asking around and, and doing speculative applications and things like that. I would also suggest that smaller businesses tend to be a lot more flexible on this issue less bothered by the kind of snob factor and they really want someone that can do everything and if you've got a great you know manner with people that's really a big plus working in a you know in a small team where you have to muck in um just one more thing i would add would, would be that despite what we're hearing about the jobs market very much still being a buyer's market in terms of the recruiters um, having all the power, they seem to still be complaining that the graduates who they're taking on aren't kind of savvy enough. So there is definitely an argument that, that something about what they're doing at the moment in just taking on people with two ones and above possibly isn't working that well. So I'm hoping that maybe they're asking themselves this question as well, whether they should be a little bit more broad-minded about taking on people um, with, with grades below a two-one. That was Tanya de Grunwald, founder of graduatefog.co.uk, talking about the requirements for a 2-1 when job seeking. So by now, we've all well and truly got the message that it's really tough to get a job in the current market and that competition for jobs is fierce, as a good number of Tory MPs who missed out on cabinet jobs have discovered in the past few days. But there was one headline going against the gloomy job market grain in this week's news. It turns out some sectors have more jobs than there is talent to fill them, and fields such as engineering, science and technology are experiencing considerable skills gaps. Research released by the Association of Graduate Recruiters this week revealed 25% of graduate engineering vacancies went unfilled last year. 
Joining us now to talk about the skills and talent gaps in this sector is Professor Saad Medhat, founding chief executive of the New Engineering Foundation, an educational charity and think tank that supports the development of vocational education and knowledge in science, engineering and technology. Welcome to the studio, Saad. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, Can we just talk about what the NEF does and what's on your agenda at the moment before we move on to that story? Uh, The NEF is is, um, an educational charity that focuses on vocational education and the development of science, engineering and technology. Our main purpose really is to support the the professionals in the the sector to help them, to equip them with the the latest skills and know-how to support the education and the development of the youngsters. It's it's good news to actually see that the growth and the demand for uh, engineering and science engineering and technology graduates still remains to be uh, prominent and it's growing and it's expanding. That is a reflection of the fact that um, the economy, particularly that part of the economy, it's still buoyant and active despite of the recession affecting many other sectors within the economy. So that's a brilliant news. But if you look at then uh, the actual question in terms of and the issue pertaining to the 25% uh, inability to recruit uh, new graduates, that could well be attributed to many factors. There is um, a misunderstanding and um, a promotional and communication uh, difficulty in, in comprehending that some of the new comp- some of the companies, the engineering companies, actually are representing new sectors, not the traditional oily rag type of um, representation that w- that has been with us for many years and in fact decades. Um, so there is part of that problem in terms of the uh, graduates' uh, appeal to the new positions and the new jobs in that particular sector. Um, the training programs that are offered in association with these large companies sometimes also not necessarily um, suitable for the graduates because we are witnessing also that graduates would like to remain in their in their regions because of the financial pressures and the loans that they have accrued over the educational period, the the, the university period. You know, despite the fact that they might be attractive offers, but in terms of finding new digs, finding new accommodations, yeah. and trying to move to somewhere else, that actually might cost them even more to move to other regions. So it doesn't make it worth their while, and it doesn't make it uh, uh, particularly worth their while. And therefore, so there are. It's a multifaceted problem so far as the attraction to new positions. Uh, in, in, in these engineering companies, and the report doesn't explicitly make it clear as what sectors or subsectors uh, are actually experiencing these uh, skills uh, difficulties. I see. So, what else needs to be done apart from making people more aware of what opportunities are available? Because I, I've seen quite a lot of them in the news recently, sort of, and science seems a bit sexy again. You know, yes. there's been the stuff on BBC with yeah. um, Professor Brian Cox. So, what else do you think needs to be done? I think the media. <laughs> It you know has a major role in educating society and in 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 informing uh, graduates and those youngsters who are aspiring to become uh, scientists, technologists, and engineers and pursuing careers in these in these sectors and subsectors. So, uh, but equally, I think the systems uh, in terms of providing career advice and guidance, uh, graduate advice and guidance, are still fairly dated and uh, you know out of sync in terms of mapping what companies. Uh, are requiring the areas of new growth that are we are we are experiencing and new technologies um, that are not necessarily communicated clearly 
to uh, graduates. And therefore, when they start to apply, they tend to, again, um, apply and focus on traditional areas rather than the newly emerging areas of, of uh, technology, of science within our economy. Okay, and is that something you're working towards that you're doing quite what, what, actively? What the New Engineering Foundation is doing, it's providing a number of things. One of the areas that we are focusing on, obviously providing advice and guidance to, to youngsters and indeed to colleges and educational institutions so that they could have some of the information available. But we also are focusing on the professional development of the teachers and the lecturers themselves. So unless you are absolutely up to date and and reflect the market needs, how can you educate tomorrow's graduates? And that's the fundamental problem that we are having here in the UK and why we're experiencing these difficulties and issues is there is a clear mismatch between what we are producing in the educational uh, system and what actually companies are requiring. And my foundation is very much providing support, financial support and grants to lecturers to enable them to take time out of the um, of their institution and to spend uh, time with industry to update themselves and to make them uh, more relevant, reflective of the uh, scientific and technological advancement. You mentioned that there's a little awareness of the specific roles and sectors that are growing, that there's just sort of an overview. So I assume that the low carbon development area is one of those. Can you tell us a bit about what that, what, jobs are available in the low carbon agenda and and what skills are going to be needed and how people how the workforce could be more equipped to deal with the boom there i think that's a a very interesting question and a fundamental question in terms of addressing the low carbon agenda Uh, believe it or not the the, the climate change is here with us despite of the various sort of uh, statistics and facts uh, and scientific emails um, uh, (laughs) and emails indeed and scientific sort of uh, papers around that particular subject you can see that the low carbon agenda will will be a fantastic way of creating new job opportunities for the economy to reinvent itself and to refocus on ways that will affect the environment but also to generate uh, wealth within the UK and if you have uh, those uh, skills that you have developed before anyone else mm. then the rest of the world will knock on your door and say hang on a minute you know could I could I could I borrow your skills and expertise to establish uh, this new development yeah so what skills are we going to need and what sort of people are going to be in demand there will be all sort of actually skills and, and, and new knowledge is required and the low carbon development and the low carbon technology itself, it is, it is on the invention continuum. That, what I mean by that, it is actually inventing itself all the time and reinventing itself all the time, which, which requires then colleges and universities to be completely in step with the technological development to provide the skills base and the knowledge base. Now, what the sort of skills we will be looking for, if you take, for example, the, the wind farms, uh, then you will see uh, people are looking for graduates and technicians and technologists that have the ability to develop those products in the first place. So if you're looking at the blades development, that will require, for example, skills in composite technology. Uh, the composite technology is a new technology. It's a new materials that is used to produce these blades. Mm-hmm. We still don't have some of those uh, skills within our educational system, but we need to develop that. So For example, 
the the uh, UK is required to meet uh, the carbon reduction commitment by 2020. Uh, and if you look at the number of wind farms that will need to be installed, we're talking about 7,000 of those across our shores. And wow. ca- currently, we only have about 600 or thereabout. So, you know, you can imagine the magnitude of developing these to, and to start with, installing them, maintaining them. Uh, so I think it's an exciting era, actually, we're going through. Despite of the res- recession, what we are seeing, that innovation is coming out against the adversity of, of, of financial recession. So uh, I think it's, the UK is, is a, in a great position to push on those fronts. You mentioned that the UK isn't very isn't gearing its education towards preparing people for this situation for this sector, um, but other com- other countries in Europe do, don't they? I mean, how much work do we really need to do in order to be prepared for for this new workforce? I think we need to look at the way we address education. We need to have a just-in-time educational system that addresses the changes in technology so that colleges and universities can re-equip the existing workforce with the latest knowledge. At the same time, we need to revamp our curriculum development from the schools all the way through colleges and universities to ensure that they are fit for the purpose and they are future-proof in terms of their ability to respond to changes in technology. And of course, if we are serious about meeting our um, commitment in terms of carbon reduction by 2020, then we need to accelerate the rate of change within our educational system. We need to have the right courses and we need to ensure that industry works closer with educational providers in terms of overcoming that disconnect and that uh, skew, if you like, between what, what the Uh, universities and colleges are producing in terms of skills base and what actually companies are requiring for their today's needs as well as future you know future needs yeah what's going on there why is there such a disconnect like you've just said and unfortunately at the most of the institutions you know have been dependent on the way in which funding is established in our educational system they will focus on meeting the targets and the metrics Uh, set out by the government, as opposed to the clients, if I can borrow this term uh, loosely, the client is basically the learners and indeed the employers. It is also a mind shift in our educational system to look at uh, better ways of connecting the employer with the educational providers. It doesn't mean that you actually, you know, you need everyone to be industrialist, but indeed you need that that balance between industry cross-pollinating your educational content and curriculum to ensure it's relevant for and fit for the purpose. So can you tell us a bit more about what other areas are experiencing growth at the moment? Um, In my view as an engineer I looked at for example three particular sectors. One is the advanced manufacturing sector which includes aerospace, um, silicon electronics, plastic and printed electronics, composites technologies, nanotechnology, these areas are experiencing tremendous growth despite of, for example, the recession that we are coming uh, out of. In 2008, there were about 600 UK aerospace employers employing over 
112,000 people and generating about 22.3 billion in terms of turnover. So it's a quite significant yeah. uh, areas of growth. A satellite communication, it's growing in the UK like topsy at the present time. And I think that's an area that you could focus on. So if you're a graduate of electronic engineering, mechanical engineering, telecommunications, computing technologies, there is great opportunity for people to pursue careers in those growing industries. Another area which is fascinating is the engineering construction, because everybody talks in, in terms of doom and gloom so far as the construction industry is concerned. But I'll tell you what, you know, in terms of the construction areas that require low carbon intervention, i.e. developing a new factories and new foundries, new buildings that conform to low, low carbon requirements are expanding at a tremendous rate. So the sector, in fact, it's the largest of its kind in Europe. Domestically, uh, it's, a, it, it, it's value, it's about 16 billion. And that construction industry could be actually in, in uh, covering a multidiscipline areas, such as biotechnology, chemical processing, building plants around um, new and emerging industries. It's a quite a fascinating area, yet it is classified as part of the construction industry. I would say to graduates, don't be too put off in terms of, oh, I'm not going to bother with construction because there are tremendous opportunities there and they exist in the newly emerging markets within the construction industry. A third area which continues to grow is the life sciences area and the pharmaceutical area as well. And, and that covers everything from uh, medical technology and medical biotechnology. So in the future, for example, we will see hip replacement using some new materials uh, and new techniques, new technologies. So if you're a mechanical engineer or a biochemist, the two actually will work together. And what's interesting in, the, uh, in looking at these new and emerging technologies, we are now seeing a coalition of government, but we are also, in scientific terms, we are seeing a coalition of different disciplines coming together to tackle some of the challenges of the future, particularly in the low-carbon area. Thanks, Hassan. It's really encouraging to hear that there are areas of growing opportunity, and it's really been fascinating learning about them. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Professor Saad Medhat from the New Engineering Foundation. Now we have some exciting environment and engineering jobs in the jobs top 10. And here to help Ali reveal the chart is Ashley Edwards from Guardian Jobs. A chance to crack down on environment crime kicks off the chart at 10. Wigan Council is looking for a principal officer to manage the environmental crime team and animal warden service. At 9, the London-based Design Museum wants a learning manager to run a programme of projects and resources for schools, colleges and universities. 8 is a graduate position for communications executive role at a leading pharmaceutical company, Pfizer. Another agency role at 7, Biz Recruit is looking for a data coordinator for a project within a large engineering firm. An academic role at the University of Manchester at 6, you'll be teaching and contributing to research in the post of Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning. Homelessness and housing charity Shelter wants a senior web developer to join its team at five. Four is a technical manager role at the Chartered Institution of Building Service Engineers. The professional body is seeking a science or engineering graduate to fill this position. Bloomberg is offering a job with travel at three. The financial news and data company is looking for a European sales manager. Birkbeck College is seeking a skilled communicator to fill the post of media and publicity officer at two. You'll be involved in editing and producing their community magazine, BBK. 
And Top of the Jobs is a chance to break into television. Recruitment agency Working Girls is looking for a broadcasting and TV graduate assistant for a leading entertainment group. If you want to apply or find out more about those, pop along to guardianjobs.co.uk. Before we go, let's have a quick look at next week's diary. Ali, what have we got coming up? Right, uh, we've got graduate jobs and training schemes in law on May 19th. And that's followed by mental health in the workplace on May 20th. And we'll be running a CV clinic on May 21st. Great. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks very much to our guests, Professor Saad Manhat, Julian Lindley, Graduate Foggs, Tanya de Gromwald, Ashley Edwards from Guardian Jobs, all of those people who shared their thoughts on overtime, and of course, Ali White. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>